you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Well, this week we're going to be focusing on the divinity of Jesus. And, and, and so we're looking at the second sentence of the creed, which says that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. So, so church, the Christian faith is null and void if that sentence isn't true. So, so, so we have to believe that this is true, that Jesus is the divine and eternal Son of God. And so Christians believe that Jesus of Nazareth was not only a Jewish prophet or the Messiah or a healer or a a winsome teacher. We believe that Jesus of Nazareth, the historical man, is also the eternal God of the universe. And we don't believe this because it's a really neat thing to believe or because it's spiritually or emotionally powerful to believe this. We don't believe it because it's, it's, more, um, it's, it's easier to convince people to follow him if he's God and, and we can say that he's God. We believe this first and foremost because he said so. Jesus said he was God and he proved himself in his life to be trustworthy. And the scriptures say so, apart from him proclaiming it. The scriptures all throughout, from Genesis to Revelation, are proclaiming the truth that Jesus is God. And, and because the good news of the Christian gospel cannot be true if Jesus isn't God. There is no gospel apart from the divinity of Jesus. With that being said, it's not an easy thing to believe that a first century nomadic Jewish rabbi is also the God of eternity. Right? Like, that's quite the proposition. It's not easy to understand how somebody can be fully God and fully man. It's not easy to explain. It's not easy to understand. But it has to be true. It must be true. And, and this issue of, of the divinity and humanity of Jesus, and especially understanding how this man could have been fully divine, that he is the eternal God, this issue it was much of the conflict and confusion in the early church, both preceding and following the writing of the Nicene Creed. It's part of the reason the creed was written is because people did not know how to proclaim that Jesus was God. And so this morning, I, I want to walk through the language of the creed re- regarding the divinity of Jesus, and, and I want to show the evidence for that in the Bible But I also want us to understand and be blessed by this doctrine more pastorally, right? I don't don't want this to just be a lecture on why Christians have to believe that God, that Jesus is God. I want us to understand why that's so important for us, why it's such good news, and why it matters for us today. Um, Today's portion of the creed, it invites us to profess that Jesus Christ is our Lord, and it It goes farther. It says that he's our one Lord, our one true Lord. And the word for Lord, translated from the Greek, means that that we're proclaiming that Jesus is the ruler, that he's the authority. It's essentially we're saying that Jesus is king. And Jesus being king 
is of primary essence of the gospel message of Christianity because the word gospel comes from a Greek word which means good news, but it doesn't simply mean good news like, man, I had a really great meal for dinner last night. Isn't that good news? It's like really good news, good news that's heralded because of some victory that's been won, likely a victory that a king has prevailed and that his kingdom is secure. So Jesus being king is good news because it means that Jesus' kingdom has been secured, that there's safety, that there's comfort, that there's protection under the lordship of Jesus. Jesus being king is good news. It's good news because Jesus has shown himself to be a good king. A king who has a heart for the outsider, who has the ability to heal the wounded and the sick and the brokenhearted. He's a king with the power to crush the wicked, to exalt the lowly, and to provide life out of nothing and out of death. And so throughout history, there have been rulers with power, right? There's been various rulers throughout human history, even throughout the globe today, who have power. And some of those rulers have been good to a degree, Right? Like to some extent, they've done good on behalf of their people. They've fought the good fight. But the thing about all of those other rulers is that either they have died or they will die, and they're all flawed. All of them have had shortcomings or weaknesses. Many have made mistakes that have led to the detriment of their people, even the death of many of their people. Our, our history is full of of these rulers that we exalt and that we're so proud of, but if we look deeply, we'll see their flaws. But Jesus is a Lord worth serving. A Lord worth serving because He's flawless, He's eternal, right? There's not a chance that Jesus is going to die, that He'll stop reigning, that He will no longer be, and He always, in every moment, throughout eternity past and in eternity future, works for the good of his kingdom and his people. In in Acts 17, there's this awesome account of a group of Christians who are being attacked. And they're being attacked because they were saying that there is another king other than Caesar, and this king's name was Jesus. Like, what a scandalous thing for these Christians to be doing, to be saying that, no, there's a better king, there's another king than Caesar. Christians have always hailed Jesus to be Lord and King. A few weeks ago on Palm Sunday, we read about the triumphal entry where Jesus is entering into Jerusalem prior to his arrest and crucifixion. And and this triumphal entry is what? It's a, a royal entry of a king into his city. And he's being hailed as a king. If you read the book of Romans, you'll see that the Apostle Paul refers to the to to Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ seven times. That's just in one letter. He calls Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ seven times. And the story of humanity in, in many ways is that of a desperate longing for a faithful ruler. A faithful ruler who will lead his people into life and joy and flourishing. And, and this was the role that was given to Adam in the beginning. That that he, as the first man, would lead humanity into flourishing and into joy, but he failed. And ever since he failed, there's been a desperation to see all of God's hopes for his people come to pass. 
and, and, and the longing in the human heart and the understanding kind of, of the way God has made things leads us to believe that that's going to come through a ruler. A Lord who would reveal all the decrees and love and majesty and grace and promises of God to his people. A Lord who would allow humanity to dwell in security and in relationship with God forever. Like all human hearts and every human society are longing for this kind of ruler who will invite them into a better, more heavenly existence than the one they have. It's why we vote. Because we want this kind of ruler. And in Revelation chapter 5, this reality is captured, I think, more tangibly and beautifully than anywhere else in all of human literature. And it's as the Apostle John is having this vision of heaven. And in verses 1 through 4 of Revelation 5, John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, referring to God, I saw in his right hand a scroll written, Within and on the back, it was sealed with seven seals. And this scroll that he's talking about, it's representative of all of the prophecies and promises and grace and beauty of God. Like the fullness of God's reality that's to be revealed to his creation. And then he continues, he says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or look into it. And hear what John does. He says, and I began to weep loudly. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. God has always desired for his people to have a people for himself, to whom and through whom he would reveal himself to the world. We've been saying that since the founding of Sojourn Montrose. And John is weeping loudly because nobody has been able to make the way for this to come to pass possible. Like, nobody's worthy to open the scroll. All of the men and rulers in the past that people had put their hope in, that they thought, maybe he's the one. All of them failed. Adam failed. Abraham failed. Noah failed. Isaac failed. Jacob failed. Moses failed, David failed, and Solomon failed. All of them were sinful. All of them were unable to bring the fullness of God's love and His truth to His people. They saw it in part. They began to see glimpses. But when John saw in full, right, he's in the heavenly places. He's seeing the fullness of God's beauty, the fullness of God's glory. He's experiencing the fullness of all the heavenly realities. And then he's being told that there's nobody who's able to make this available to creation. That, that no way can people experience this because nobody can open the scroll. And so he's weeping loudly. So it's so moving to me that to be given an image of the heavenly places and know that that all of this glory could be revealed if only there were someone worthy to reveal it. This is reason for weeping. There's a lot of anxiety in this text. And, and, and this reason for weeping and, and this anxiety is where we find the necessity 
of the doctrine that we proclaimed in the creed today. That Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. What what does this language mean? Let's start with Jesus being the only begotten Son of God. Begotten is a word that's a bit confusing to us, and, and we see it three times in this sentence. It's confusing, one, because it's primarily used in older literature, and it's also confusing because it, we understand it generally in biological terms, right? That, that to beget something is to have biological offspring, right? We think of Isaac begetting Jacob. We, we think of David begetting Solomon. But the word most literally means to bring forth. And the Greek word for only begotten is actually a different word altogether. It's it's a word that means one of a kind or of a class. It's It's to be utterly unique. So what we're really saying in the creed is that Jesus is the only one of his kind as the Son of God. And that he came forth from God before all worlds or before all ages, or in eternity past, and that though He came forth from the Father, He was not made. Now this is where the mystery of Jesus being the begotten Son of God gets even more mysterious, right? How can can Jesus have come forth from the Father if if He's always existed, right? If He was not made, how can He have come forth? Well, on the one hand, I'm just going to shoot you straight. I can't give you a very satisfying answer. Like, I can't give you an answer that you're just going to be able to, like, logically work out and say, that's totally satisfying to all my questions. What I can say is that the way in which Jesus is begotten of the Father is not something that language can fully capture. Because He isn't a son of God in the same way that I am a son of my Father who's named Tim, right? Like, I'm Tim's offspring. And there was a time in which I was created and which I came forth. And that means that there was a time in which I was not Tim's son and in which Tim was not a father. But Jesus has always, from eternity past, been the son of the Father God. Always. But sons come from fathers. Right? And so there's a way in which Jesus has always come from the Father as a son. And that there was never a time in which Jesus had not yet come from the Father as a son. That if you go all the way to eternity past, you would see Jesus having come from the Father as a son. He is begotten in that part of begetting. Begetting something implies that like comes from like. A raccoon cannot beget a possum or a fish, right? It it just can't. A raccoon, if it is so blessed to beget, it will beget a raccoon. So walk with me. If God the Father is eternal and creator of all, all all-powerful, full of might and majesty and goodness and righteousness, and he begets a son, then that son must also be God. 
eternal and creator, full of might and power and majesty and righteousness. This is the way in which Jesus has always been unique, right? Because he has always been the unique and that he's the only one who is a son of God in this sort of way. Bearing all of the substance of God, the, the language that, that he is of one substance with the Father, that they're made of the same stuff. They are fully divine, the Father and the Son. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, which Victoria read earlier, says this. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, which means first. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God pleased to dwell within him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The author of Hebrews begins his letter this way, saying, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God has spoken to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 10, much more simply. He says, I and the Father are one. All of these texts, along with countless others in the Bible, proclaim that Jesus is God, that he's one with the Father, having the same essence and divine nature of the Father, that he's the ruler and the creator of the world, that he's the upholder of everything at all times, and that he is the savior of mankind. So the creed is clear and the scriptures are clear that Jesus is God. He's God in essence, in role, and in his eternity. He is the eternal Son of God. He's the Lord of all. But why is this so important? Why is it so important? Why must we believe that Jesus is God? Like why isn't it sufficient to think that He's Savior, a good teacher, a valuable prophet? Why isn't it enough? And why did God determine that He had to come down to earth in the likeness of mankind in order to save us? Well, we need to believe that Jesus is God, because Jesus regularly claimed to be God. And, and, and so if he isn't God, I'll, I'll borrow from C.S. Lewis, that he's either a, a lunatic or a liar. Right? Like a guy who regularly proclaims to, to be God and does all the things Jesus does, but isn't God, is nuts or a liar or demonic. Right? That's what C.S. Lewis says. And so if he's a liar or a lunatic or demonic, then we're all wasting our time this morning. Right, like, like di diving into who he is, singing songs to him, like it's all worthless, even evil. But if we believe he is God, if we believe he is God who came down 
to earth in the flesh, that He is the way to experience relationship with God the Father for eternity, that He rose from the dead, then that has to be of eternal and unsurpassable consequence, right? Remember that passage from earlier in the sermon from, from Revelation, when, when there's this scroll in heaven full of the heavenly realities and promises and love of God for His people, and nobody could open the scroll because nobody was worthy. And so John's weeping loudly in heaven, right? Which is the only time in history that anyone will weep there. Nobody could open the scroll because there was a problem of righteousness, nature, and type. Only God is righteous. Only He is able to comprehend, receive, and be worthy of the realities that He reveals. Right? This is a problem. Only God can access the fullness of the things of God. Especially His beauty and His grace and His glory. Humans are different, right? We're sinful. We're finite. We're weak. And so by nature, there's a void between us and God. We're of a different type. Not, not being God. We can't access the fullness of God. And, and this has been a problem for humanity throughout the entire history of humanity. No matter how good a human is, how hard a society as a whole tries, no matter how faithfully they worship or pray or obey, the fullness of God cannot be seen or experienced by them. They simply are not worthy. But God became a man. And he lived perfectly. And he died sacrificially. And he rose victoriously over death. And he reigns presently as the Lord of everything. So now there is a man who is worthy to open the scroll. There is one who is worthy to make the fullness of God accessible to mankind. Because this man is God. And he must be God. But because he is God, he can receive and be worthy of all the things of God. And because He is man, He can make the fullness of the things of God accessible to mankind. He has to be man, but He has to be God. The text from Revelation continues. I'll pick it up from verse 3 and, and read through verse 5, which is where we didn't get. It says, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The divinity of Jesus, church, it means that you and me and all who come to him in faith can experience the fullness of the blessings of God. All of his promises, all of his forgiveness, all of his life which is eternal in nature, all of his glory. This is pastorally good because it means that when you need healing, your Savior is the God of creation, full of power and might. When you need forgiveness, your Savior is the God of the universe who has purchased your pardon and has the authority to forgive you. When you need hope, 
Your Savior, Jesus Christ, is the God from eternity past. He's the God of light, and he's the God of a glorious and eternal future that he's inviting you into. When you need rest, your Savior is the God who invented rest after created everything. And he's inviting you into that rest. It means that that Jesus is not just a wise teacher from the past who is guiding us into a better life. He isn't just a prophet telling us how we might please God. He isn't just an example showing us how we should live. Jesus is the living God. He's the king right now. He's ready to help you. He stands to comfort you. He's able to heal you. And most importantly, he has died to save you. And so that means that when Jesus calls you, and maybe he is right now for the first time, when he calls you, he is doing so as the voice and word of God, because he is God. Church, this is gospel. This is good news. It's good news for you, and as the angels told the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth, it's good news for all mankind. So let's treasure it, and then let's take it to our neighbors. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We love you and we are so unbelievably grateful that you would give your son to us so that we too, though not in the same way, but in a significant way, might be called sons as well, daughters as well. We thank you that you have come down to us to reveal to us the fullness of your glory and your love, to make accessible to us all of your promises and all of your blessings and pray lord that you would give us by the power of your spirit a faith to take hold of those things and be transformed by them and to experience your fullness and to delight in being with you knowing that without without christ we would never be able to be with you we would always be striving but you have made a way and we thank you for it pray that as we come to the table this morning that as we feast, we would be feasting with gratitude and in intimacy that you have come down to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.